You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, The Marriage as Covenant, Philip Edwards will teach on how the most intimate of human personal relationship, marriage, takes the form of a covenant. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can sign up for past modules, register for future modules and to see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media for live streams at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Good evening and welcome again to Arise Academy where we are dealing with uh, the subject of covenants. Uh, we've come to the last and final in this series and I want to be talking about the marriage covenant. Before I teach on the marriage covenant, I want to make it clear that if you're listening to the teaching and you're one of the persons whose marriage has broken down or you're struggling with a difficult marriage relationship even now at this time, I want to say there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ. It's a shame that these things happen, but they do. And there is no sense in, in which the church uh, should condemn people because they've uh, entered into or suffered a broken relationship. Jesus never came to condemn the world. He came to save the world. And so we're looking to him for salvation and hope. What's past, in a sense, is past. And with God, there's always the chance of a, a second opportunity. Must remember what Paul said in Philippians 3 and 15. He said, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. Stuff has happened in all of our lives. And really, when we come to Christ, we, it, it closes off, as it were, and we can deal with that with Christ and then uh, move on. I'm sure there was a lot in Paul's life that he wished that he hadn't done, and if he could, he would have changed it. But he can't. He can't change it, and we can't change what's gone before. It's through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that his blood removes the guilt and the stain of sins from our life. Uh, with a grateful heart to God, we can turn around and we can move in a new direction, a second chance, as it were. Let's pray before we start our teaching this evening. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for this opportunity to open up the scriptures and for you to speak to us directly from your word. We present ourselves before you. We open up our hearts and minds. We want you to talk clearly to us. And Father, we just want to understand you better and understand the principles that you've laid down for us in life. Help us, we pray now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Biblical marriage, then, is, is a reflection of the covenant God has made with his people. And Christ has with his church. So when we look at the covenant that God has made with us, we can look at the covenant that God has made or the covenant that we make with somebody in marriage. There's, there's sort of a, a similarity of the two. Our relationship with God teaches about our marriage recovery. Uh, as, we, as we understand the covenant that we have, we know what God expects for us in the covenant that we make on earth. Also, in a marriage, we learn what it is to be in covenant. And so the marriage itself teaches us of the covenant that God expects from us. So we learn both ways. The covenant with God teaches us what's expected in our marriage. And the covenant that we have here can teach us things that God is expecting with him. We learn from what we live and we live what we learn. Because Christianity is to love God and to love our neighbour primarily, God has created for his people what I've called the everyday school of life. 
So just by living life every day, we are learning. If we're attentive to the things of the Spirit, the Spirit of God is teaching us through life's experiences. We're born into a family and we grow up in a family relationship. We learn to to understand about a loving father, a loving mother and a loving father. And of course, together they should represent God to us. That was God's plan. I know some, many families just, they don't have that. But, but that's what God intended. A loving mother, a loving father, rearing and bringing up children uh, to respect the father and mother. Growing into the responsibility of adulthood then, uh, we take on a wife or a husband. And in that, we understand covenant relationship, something that God requires to have with us and what we want with God. And it's in the marriage that we understand uh, how it works, the commitment that's necessary in the whole business. And uh, the third area of our life where uh, it's very practical that God is teaching us in this everyday school of life is the rearing of children. Uh, We learn what it is to love our children. And from this, we learn how much God loves us. The pain that our children give us. The the pain that we give God. You know, we're supposed to think about all these relational things with our spouse, with our mother and father, with our children. And God is teaching us all the time about relationship. It's the everyday school of life. It is through these experiences that we have on a daily basis, real living experiences with with people and the relationships that we have with these people. And it's through the scriptures explaining to us what's going on, we can enter into this intimate relationship with God. He reveals to us what it means to be in relationship with him. The marriage covenant then, we've seen that the covenant relationship is the highest relationship that we can have with anybody. And that's what God requires from us, the highest possible relationship, a relationship of covenant with him. The most intimate, personal, human relationship we have with our spouse is also a covenant relationship. It's called the marriage covenant. Therefore, what I'm suggesting to you tonight is all the principles that we've learned about covenant over these last few months, really, they all apply to the covenant of marriage relationships, all of them. So when we consider all the different principles, all the different rules that govern everything in this covenant relationship with God, they apply to the husband and wife situation. There's a passage in, uh, in the Old Testament, in Malachi, that clearly shows us that uh, our marriage is a covenant, just in case you were to doubt that for one minute. I'll just read that one to you. Uh, it, it, it describes the relationship between God and his nation Israel, and how uh, Israel was unfaithful in the relationship. And it led to a, a breaking down of that relationship. But he makes it very clear in these verses that God sees a, a man and a woman come together and entering into a covenant. And so he compares his relationship with Israel as a husband married to a wife. It's in Malachi 2, 14 and 15. This is from the Amplified because it was just necessary to make any sense from it. Okay, so uh, I'm reading from the Amplified Version. Because the Lord was witness, and this is the Amplified bit, to the covenant made at your marriage between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously and to whom you were faithless. Yet she is your companion and the wife of your covenant made by your marriage vows. And did not God make you and your wife one flesh? Did not one make you 
and preserve your spirit alive. And why did God make you two one? Because he sought a godly offspring from your union. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and let no one deal treacherously and be faithless to the wife of his youth. In the Old Testament, marriage is used to describe the covenant relationship between God and Israel. Israel was his wife. He was uh, the, the male in that relationship, as it were, in the imagery that we've got. God is the husband, and he's married to the nation of Israel. But unfaithful Israel is an adulterous wife. This is what this passage is, is driving at here. And in that description in Malachi, he says, don't you be like this. In this covenant relationship, you be faithful to it. Don't do what Israel did with me. So he's clearly saying marriage is, is the same for me. Uh, and the way I think about it is, is, is the same for you in your relationship in marriage. In the New Testament, we get a similar uh, illustration there. Marriage is described as the relationship between Christ and his church. The church is the bride of Christ and the wife is the wife of the Lamb. We read that in Revelation. In the teaching uh, on the one flesh marriage in uh, Ephesians, uh, Paul merges the two images together of the church as the bride of Christ, as he describes it, but he's also talking about the church as the body of Christ. So he sort of um, juxtapositions, doesn't he? He flips from one to the other, as it were, in that. In that passage, what he says is this. The husband should love their wives as Christ loved the church. Then he goes on to say, and it's the responsibility of husbands all the time in that passage. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Then he goes on to say, the man feeds and cares for his body as Christ does the church, which is his body. There is a building up of the illustration there, and I've written it out in a slightly different way that I just found a little simpler. A man would not hurt his own body, but he would care for it. That makes sense. A bit strange if we hurt ourselves. Then it says, Christ the head would not hurt his own body, the church, but he would care for it. Which leads to the third point, the husband, the head, would not hurt his own body, his wife, but care for her. That's what he's driving at. It's how just as Christ cares for the church, the man in the marriage situation should care for his wife in the same way he cares for his own body. She becomes vital and important to his whole life and being. In this study, we'll apply the covenant principles we've been discussing in the covenant of marriage. By the end of this evening, the poor men will be drooping, okay, uh, realising the awesome responsibility that God has placed upon them. But it's all by God's grace. We can do it, guys. We can manage this. Now, most of the principles that we will consider, they're rarely understood and therefore seldom experienced. They're, they're almost definitely not understood by the world. But as I reflect back to my own marriage 50 years ago, I didn't understand any of this. Um, and a lot of people who get married, they don't understand what they're doing by entering into a covenant relationship. And when I say that, I mean the way that God expects it to be. So most marriages are simply a shadow 
of what God would want in a marriage. In other words, the cross of Christ provides the spiritual dynamic that made the final reconciliation between man and God possible. There's a, we learned in the covenant it wasn't possible to have a relationship, as it were, with God until Christ went to the cross. So we're going to apply all the principles of what happened when Christ went to the cross for us to have a relationship with God. They all apply to the marriage. And so uh, as we study what the, the cross meant and, and the new covenant, we'll understand what God is expecting from a marriage relationship. This same spiritual dynamic is also available to the marriage covenant. So what was made available by Christ's coming in the relationship that we could have with God through his death and because two Christians come together to be married, those same principles and power exists within the marriage relationship. So what, what were they? What, what did he accomplish for us? The first thing the cross did, it removed, um, well, it removed sin, really, or that thing that drove us to sin, that, that, that pressure within that kept us sinning all the time. What does that refer to in marriage? In marriage, it removes selfishness. Mm. Okay, perhaps you can reflect on, on some marriages and thinking, whoa, there's a real selfishness going on here. I mean, but you see, that's what, that's what, that's what the, the, the covenant with God has done. It has removed sin from the whole situation, which is selfishness. So apply that to the marriage. And so we know that what Christ has done applied to the marriage is to remove selfishness from the marriage. The second thing we see that the death and the resurrection of Christ did, Christ's spirit entered into man, and so he had a new set of values. He lived by a new set of values. He wasn't living by the values of his fallen nature. He was now living by the values of the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. In the marriage, we should see the fruit of love all the time. Just as we see it in life with us and our relationship with God, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and everything that's within us. And we can do this now because Christ has entered into us. He's saying, I expect that in the marriage covenant as well. It's no different. Uh, extreme, dedicated love and the third thing we see that the cross and the resurrection did uh, it internalized the law remember before the law was written on tablets of stone but when we put faith in christ and christ died his spirit came into us and because he lived the perfect law then it's in our hearts and so we can live the perfect law of god and not only that but we're motivated to do so from inside so a Christian wouldn't just be able to say, I really want to love my wife. He can say, I can and I will love my wife. It's made possible through Christ. Let's look now at the following characteristics that apply to the marriage. I'm going to um, talk about three of them. The first thing is, and you'll remember these words or these terms from the teaching that I've given you before about covenant, marriage is what we call a bonded relationship. It's entered into by a solemn promise. Do you remember making those solemn promises? It's confirmed with an oath and a vow. You said certain things and she said certain things. You did it in a hall full of people, presumably, or some witnesses anyway, and you did it before Almighty God. So what you said, it was a covenant that you entered into between God and the two people who were joining themselves in marriage. 
Both parties then, they called on God to witness the binding nature of the commitment they had entered into. On reflection, I can't think of anything in my life that was more solemn than this. I don't ever remember standing in a room of a hundred witnesses at any other time promising to do something on oath to a person. I, I never did, I've never done it. I probably will never do it. So that's how serious this whole thing is. That's how God has elevated it to this, this very serious position, a very solemn thing to do. The heart of the marriage relationship is a bond of person's loyalty to one another. We know this in the covenants, don't we? God is loyal to us. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never, ever forsake you. And so in the marriage, we make a loyal, a loyal covenant that we will say we would never break. Because of the vows that are made, uh, there are three things uh, that I want to bring to your attention that we see in the covenants that we studied. We said that the covenant that God entered into us with was preeminent. In other words, it took priority over all other obligations in our life. My relationship with God is above everything else. Nothing comes close to that. When we enter into marriage, we could say the same thing. This relationship I have with my wife or with your husband is preeminent. In other words, apart from my, my relationship with God, everything else is secondary to the relation I have with my spouse. My vocation, my job, my ministry, all the other responsibilities that I have are subordinate to my marriage relationship. So if I'm doing something and it's not pleasing to her, I must seriously consider stopping doing it. That's it. Otherwise, she's not, she's not the important one that she should be. She's not preeminent above everything else. If I'm doing a job that my wife doesn't like and it's understandable that I'm causing her stress in doing it, I have to consider changing that job moving position on that. I don't have a choice. If this marriage is going to succeed, then the covenant in marriage is important. The second thing is, it's permanent. It's intended to be a lifelong relationship. Now, if this is not your experience, God has made provision for you. We know that. God permitted divorce. Why? Jesus tells us. For the hardness of people's hearts. There's no way God is going to say, this is wonderful that you're married, but this is such an awful situation. You've just got to stay like this. God says, no, I want peace in people's lives and therefore I've made allowances for this because of the hardness of people's hearts. Uh, the scriptures are always written as though everything is perfect, isn't it? I mean, that's the only way you can do it. It gets very confusing otherwise. But there are other provisos that are built in there. The third thing is, it's inviolable. It is not to be broken or violated in any way. We know that adultery and possibly unfaithfulness are the most serious forms of wrongdoing. But there are other things as well uh, that can cause the covenant to be broken. Even simple things like someone is constantly, constantly unreasonable all of the time, causing that person to live such a miserable life. That is not what God wants. And so he has made it possible for that to break the covenant as well. The second characteristic about it is the basis of marriage is a covenant of grace. Remember we said that, that God is drawn it up through grace and therefore we receive everything from this covenant by faith. Founded on faith, the function is on the basis of grace then. 
doing good to each other freely with no strings attached. See, that's grace. It's not conditional. It's, it's offered freely. To say, I will come halfway, is not grace. You don't come halfway in the marriage relationship. You come all the way. To come halfway is law. To say, I've done my bit, now it's up to you to do your bit, why, well, it simply works. That's, that's not the marriage covenant either. Now, I understand it takes two parties to say these things and to believe these things and to want to do these and do the, for it to work. Of course, it won't work if, if the two parties aren't serious about doing it God's way. It just won't work. Covenant uh, marriage, then, it will only work on the basis of grace, on grace all the time. The third characteristic, the stronger party undertakes obligations towards the weaker party. Now, I'm going to tell you who the stronger party is, just in case you have any confusion about this. Now, when I say this person is the stronger party, you can say, well, I know a marriage relationship. Well, that's not the case. Well, this is what the Bible says, so I can only preach to you what the Bible says. I can't preach to you anything else. In 1 Peter 3 and 7, it says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you love your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. It doesn't say that she's weaker. It says treat her as though you were the stronger and she were the weaker. That is a question of protecting and guarding and watching over and laying your life down. Just like Christ laid his life down for the church, the husband, the stronger one, uh, guards his wife, protects her and lays his life down for her. In the Bible, the Bi sorry, it lays, it lays great emphasis on the responsibility of the husband over and over again. It is the man, in Genesis we read, who is to leave his mother and father, not the woman, the man leaves and then uh, he unites with his wife. It is the husband who is commanded to love the wife in that Ephesians passage and give himself for her. It doesn't say the wife has to love her husband. It says that she is to respect him, but he is the one who is called to love he is to be considerate to his wife, it says, and to treat her with respect as a physically weaker partner and heir with him of the gracious gift of life. If the husband is not working with his wife in spiritual matters and, and everything pertaining, half of the partnership is, is, is not there. God struggles then to bless when that is not happening. There needs to be an understanding, a coming together of both parties for the blessing of God to come. To think that you can live as you like and call upon God for his blessing is nonsense. He wouldn't give it to you because he would be agreeing with your actions and what it is you're, you're trying to do. So he says, no, I'm not going to do that. You have to work this thing out. And when it's worked out, I can come and uh, move upon your lives. I want to, just before we break here, is to talk about the advantages of covenant. The security of making mistakes and learning from them. See, if I'm in a covenant relationship with a person, they're allowed to make mistakes, and I'm allowed to make mistakes. And because it's covenant, it makes it secure. It's a place where we can make mistakes. The demand of a perfect performance every day would be unreasonable and not possible, especially when we marry young, what do we know? We'll make lots of mistakes. But, but in marriage, we can find forgiveness for each other. There's a security in that. 
You say, well, that works anyway in any relationship. No, 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 it doesn't. A committed relationship is important, it's vital. And don't forget the third party who is in this relationship with us is God. So God is, is working in the whole thing as well. That's what makes it so precious and so important. The second uh, advantage is we're obliged to work through problems. We're obliged to do it. In the same way God has said to us in his covenant relationship, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Whatever you do, I will be here and I'm not going anywhere else. Now we might think he's not listening to us or something, but he promised never to leave us. So within the marriage relationship, that promise is there. The option to walk out is not there. It doesn't exist. You just have to see it through. The relationship is secure in the low times. Mm. Uh, if you've been in marriage, you know there are low times and there are better times. Um, often the low times, they affect our feelings. We feel, we feel we can't do this. We feel it's not right. Well, we made a commitment, a covenant commitment to this person. And in these low times, we'll just stay there. We'll just, we'll just be there and make it work. The covenant protects us from sexual attraction to another person. It would be wonderful to think that once we were married, this somehow didn't exist. That men weren't attracted to other women or women to men. And, and they are, we know they are so often. But if we hold the covenant sacred, we would say, I know this feeling I'm having and what I'm seeing, and what I, but this isn't gonna happen because of my covenant relationship. This of which I've entered into, this protects me, this keeps me. I'm determined to maintain my covenant relationship with this person. Covenant leads to us to discover that the ungiving self is an unfulfilled self. Oh, that people would learn this. It is only by giving oneself in covenant relationship that the whole thing works. God says, you draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. You keep your distance from me, I'll respect that. But as we give ourselves to God, then he gives himself to us. And so it's the same in marriage. As we give ourselves to the other person, all things being equal, they should give themselves to us. Now, if it's not working because people aren't respecting their in covenant and they're not following the word of God, then it won't work. I understand that. And some people, they try and try and try and try giving and giving, but there is no response. And so in the end they go, we haven't got a covenant marriage. It's not working. It could be one of the reasons to say, listen, I don't want to live with you as though we were in a covenant relationship when you're not even wanting to enter into a covenant relationship with me. It's a farce. It's not a marriage. It's just, we're living together and this is unacceptable. It's a, well, it's not even a shadow of what God would expect from relationship. Covenant also helps us to recognize our fallenness the need to trust our uh, trustworthiness by keeping our public, uh, the, the vows that we made in public, by just keeping them, keeping them. I wonder if people ever reflect when they're thinking of walking out or divorcing, they stood in front of maybe a hundred people and promised before God they would do something. Does that ever enter their heads it should do it should do the covenant rests then on God's righteousness in us that's the last one covenant rests on God's righteousness in us if we are not walking in righteousness 
it won't work. But if we are, Jesus himself will guarantee, will guarantee the marriage and by his power, he will hold the whole thing together. Okay, I'll have a little break there and come back after the break. Thank you. In this part, we're going to look at uh, the new covenant provisions for new covenant marriage. The specific provisions of the new covenant as they apply to marriage. So again, we're looking at what the new covenant expressed and applying that to the marriage situation. The first provision is that covenant is entered into only by sacrifice. Christ has become a sacrifice for us in the new covenant by identification with his death and resurrection we die to our sinful past and we enter into a new relationship as it were with God so through the sacrifice of Christ death has taken place and we enter into relationship by the same sacrifice we enter into a covenant with another person in marriage we die when we get married we die just in the same way that we entered into a covenant relationship with God we died something died within us for us to enjoy that how did we die in marriage we're saying we're dead to all past relationships so whatever relationships you had in the past and they could have been very meaningful and uh, loving or, or committed or, or whatever, now you're going to marry this person, all of those. You have to die to every one of those. Every past emotional attachment has to be broken. Is that what's inferred when it says uh, a man will leave his mother and his father? That emotional attachment that perhaps he has with his mother, he has to break that to enter into this new relationship he has with this woman. Now, uh, it doesn't spurn her or have nothing to do with her, but if there is an emotional attachment, that has to be broken. And we know that in some marriages, we know that the mother-in-law okay, still has quite a, a strong hold sometimes over the son. We used to say, I don't know if it's in the marriage vows now, forsaking all others. Do you remember that little phrase? Um, I've looked up some modern books. It, it's not in there at all now, so we don't say things like that. In fact, there's lots of things we don't say now in, in marriage ceremonies that I think are important because they tie into uh, biblical covenant and they've, they've all been sort of scrapped and moved on in this modern way. We become separated just unto each other, as though there was no one else in the world, just this person. That's, that's the idea of dying. We renounce all rights to live for ourselves anymore. There can be advantages in getting married later in life because we're more mature, we can, uh, we've worked through some stuff, but there's also a problem in getting married later in life. One becomes more selfish because all you've lived for is yourself. You didn't have to consider others, as it were. So, you know, if you get married young, then that could be an advantage or a disadvantage. Marrying young, you don't know anything. I got married young. I didn't know anything. So any mistakes, we made them together. Uh, and we probably made uh, quite a few on the way. So... We renounce self and the personal desires of self-centeredness. We have to die to self to live for the other person. We enter into a new life in which we live wholly for the marriage partner to meet their needs and see them fulfilled as persons. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. 
Have we got the right ever to say no if a request is made of us and it's within our power to do it? It says in normal Christian living, if someone requires something of you, your brother and sister in Christ, and you have the ability to meet that need, you're supposed to meet it. That's Christian love. How much more in the marriage covenant, if the partner says, please, will you do this for me? Can we ever say no? Ever? I'll leave that one with you. Henceforth, whatever happens, and no matter what arises, we are committed always to be for each other. And all we have and are is for them, and we are on their side. We will stand with them in all circumstances. You know, sometimes in the marriage relationship, you might not agree with what your partner's doing. Uh, you're of a different opinion. Obviously, if she's doing something unrighteous, you've got, you can't stand with unrighteousness, I get that. But sometimes you think, oh, well, I wouldn't do that, or I, I would do it differently. No, if they've taken that stand, you're committed to stand with them. That's it. You can't take sides against them. The second provision, because the sin problem has been dealt with in the new covenant, the damaging effects of wrongdoing in marriage can be overcome. There can be very damaging things, unfaithfulness in marriage and all these things, they can be overcome. The new covenant provides for forgiveness. Just like our covenant with God, there was a provision for forgiveness because we entered into covenant with him. There isn't anything that he didn't forgive. He wouldn't forgive or couldn't forgive. He forgave us completely of everything. Which deals with the guilt of sin. Therefore, we have the ability to forgive one another. Because the covenant that we've made with him in the new covenant is transferred to the covenant we have now in marriage. It says in Ephesians 4 and 32, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ in God forgave you. Ooh. So you can't harbour any resentments or unforgiveness or bitterness. Forgiveness, just remind ourselves what it is, it's completely releasing the other person. When God forgives us, he chooses to blank it out from his memory or understanding. He chooses to do that. So I just have to assume he can do that. And so we stand before him blameless. If he looked at you and you start going on about some sin you committed donkeys years ago, he would look at you as much to say, I don't know what you're talking about because I have chosen to forgive it, therefore it's forgiven and it's gone. So forgiveness then is releasing the person from any blame or recrimination. Isn't it funny, sometimes when we get into arguments, we can pull up some stuff it happened a long time ago uh, to strengthen our argument when it has nothing to do with what we're discussing today. It's just like, well, I'll chuck this on and we'll just bring this one up and this one up and, and you're thinking, oh, I thought that was dealt with. Well, it needs to be. The forgiveness is releasing from any punishment or any revenge. Forgiveness ends the matter. It's finished with. And if we find ourselves in a discussion, argument, then we, if this happens, we just need to stop it and say, no, 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 just stay with the point that we're discussing, not bring up things from the past. The new covenant provides for cleansing to deal with the stain of sin, our consciousness of sin. The death of Christ dealt with the guilt I don't feel guilty for my sin. I hope you don't because the death of Christ dealt with guilt. You're thinking, mm, all the things that you've done, 
don't you feel guilty? No, no, you're not supposed to. You're just not supposed to. And have I got a conscience about what I've done? No, no, because my heart has been cleansed. The blood of Jesus cleansed me of the stain or the consciousness of that sin. It's as though I'd never sinned. I'm justified in Christ. It's not a mental act. It's real. It's real. There are no feelings of guilt or condemnation. Because of this, the relationship can avoid the effects of wrongdoings that often leave a marriage tarnished. It must be awful uh, if there is unfaithfulness in marriage. I mean, it's, I don't know, a worse thing that can happen, really, because it's a violation of, of this relationship. Um, and it's just painful. But, but really... Christians need to move on from that and allow the grace of God to cleanse their hearts and the blood of Jesus to be applied so there's no tarnishing. The marriage relationship can be kept untainted as a blood-washed conscience as we learn to walk in the light with each other, to be open and to be honest with one another. The third provision under the new covenant, the law of God is internalised. In the same way, the law of God regarding marriage can be written on our hearts. God wants to write new laws about marriage on our hearts. He wants to write the law of love. He wants to write the law of faithfulness, the law of honouring one another, respecting, the law of understanding each other. He wants to write those laws in our hearts, just like he's written the laws that Jesus kept and they're in us. He wants to put these new laws in us. When that happens, the law becomes not a set of rules, not a standard of behaviour that we seek to obey or even a set of principles to live by, but we are motivated from the inside, as it were, to love that person. It has to be almost like the same force that causes us to love God is the same force within the marriage that causes us to love our partner. The gulf that used to exist between what we knew we ought to do and the motivation to actually do it has been bridged in marriage, so that living by the law of love becomes a way of life. Just like we love God. And it's, it's a good exercise to write down what you think it means to love God. It's, it's not so much an emotional thing. It can be. Uh, emotion should always be involved in love somewhere. But if it's predominantly emotion, then that's not a good thing. So what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love my partner, my spouse? What does it mean? The marriage covenant bridges the gulf that was between us. Another provision that we find in the New Covenant that we have here is we are given a heart of flesh for the previous heart of stone. With the New Covenant, we have a new set of values. Remember, they are the fruits of the Spirit. It isn't debauchery and all the sexual stuff that is the, the sins of the flesh, but it is love, joy, peace, and all of those things. So in marriage, we have a new set of inner values that is in harmony with the law of God. Previously, we were programmed by false, misleading and sinful values. We see them on the television all the time. We hear them all the time regarding marriage, regarding uh, sex inside and outside of marriage, the role of the husband and wife. We, well, the world does. We should protect ourselves from this. We joke about it all the time. One of the terminologies for the wife is struggle and strife. We don't need those values. There is lots and lots of that. You know, uh, the macho man and the, 
the little woman and all this nonsense, you know, they're values that we've been fed and we've been fed all the time, all the time, all the time. And to watch any television now, it's there. Two people meet, they go to bed, they don't even know each other's names. They don't know, they don't, it's not even important. All these sorts of values that are rare in the world, that's what the world is learning all the time. But we have a new set of values that is based on the word of God. We can be freed from these inadequate and wrong attitudes that the world would feed us with. I am so grateful I grew up in a Christian home and as a young person in a church. I didn't have to struggle. Well, I knew what the values were, the right values, so I didn't have to unlearn the wrong ones to learn the right ones. Thank God for that. But lots of people now coming into the church, they've got a They've got to learn a whole new set of values and somehow get rid of all the worldly ones which they've grown up thinking these were perfectly all right. There was nothing wrong with these. Everyone is doing this and this is what is advocated. So what is wrong with you? And of course we're killjoys and want to stop all their fun and everything when we're really trying to give them a new, special, wonderful sort of life. Instead, begin to see marriage from God's perspective and appreciate the glory of his design in the marriage relationship. The fifth uh, provision is we begin to experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in marriage. We find him resident. The Holy Spirit is present in our marriage. Of course he is. He's present in each member, party, but he's also present in the union of the marriage as well, which is vital. He is the bond, as it were, of the union. He's working, causing the bond to work all the time. He's always working, just as he works in your life to keep you in relationship with God and to take you into a deeper relationship with God and to just deal with you as you walk in the grace so within the marriage, he's working all the time with God and each of you. It says in Ecclesiastes 4, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 12, it says two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Then he adds this, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Isn't that a bit weird? He's talking about two all the time. And then all of a sudden he introduces, oh, there's a third one here. I think it was Derek Prince I was reading. He said, he said the three-stranded cord is the strongest possible cord you could have. Three strands. He said, that way, every strand is constantly in touch with the other two. If you think, if you want it, well, if you had more than that, one would be out and wouldn't be touched. So a three-stranded cord, which he's driving at here, is all the time, there's me, there's her, and there's the Holy Spirit. And we're together all the time. A three-stranded cord is not easily broken. What does this third person in the marriage do? Hmm, that reminds me of somebody who said the third person in our marriage, but that was terrible. Almost doomed, as it were, as far as this teaching goes, doomed from the beginning. Unless, unless either of those could draw back from that, the marriage could never have worked. It, wasn't, it was impossible. What does the third person, though, the third person of the spirit, what does he do within the marriage? He monitors the quality of the relationship all the time. That's his job. And what he'll do, he can let us know when things are going wrong and how to right the relationship. Now, the parties have to be in agreement with all of this teaching. The parties have to be there all the time. God must be important to them and the success of their marriage must be important to them. But the Holy Spirit is there to make us sensitive. Um, 
men can be a bit cloddy. I talk as a man now, you might not agree with me. Uh, the women will probably agree with me. It's like we're very simple beings. Um, and we need the Holy Spirit all the time to explain things to us and to just make it clear. So we just understand. We just understand. So to say mm, men can never understand women, that's one of those worldly values, okay. Well, by and large, that might be true, unless we've got the third person of the Holy Spirit to explain to us what's going on here. How can I adjust the way I am to make it work? He will help us correct matters at an early stage if we involve him in our marriage. He corrects without crushing us, and he humbles us without humiliating us. He's there to make the whole thing work as he is in our relationship with God. The sixth provision in marriage that we see in the New Covenant is the knowledge of the other becomes possible. If we go back to the first marriage union between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they lived in perfect intimacy. It was a perfect unity between the two of them. It says they were naked and unashamed. That, that's what we should desire for our marriages. Not to run about naked all the time. That's neither here nor there. That's not what this passage of scripture is, is talking about. I mean, if you want to do that in your own home, that's up to you. But that's not what it's driving at. It's talking about there, there being no, an openness about us. A, 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 there isn't anything that I'm hiding, either in my head or my thoughts. I can be completely open with you. Now, it's not always easy in marriage to do that. And both parties have to agree to that. Uh, it's not always good to spill everything out you're thinking anyway. That would be disastrous if your thinking isn't, isn't in line with what God would have you think. Well, just get rid of that. Don't bring that out all the time. But there should be the ability to be open and honest and vulnerable, uh, naked and unashamed, as he puts it there. The new covenant restores what was lost by sin, so that we can come back to something. What did they do as soon as they sinned? Do you remember? They ran off and covered their nakedness. See, they became ashamed. They didn't want to be open and vulnerable. Sin did that. Sin, sin has caused the barrier between the man and the woman. So in coming to Christ and accepting everything in the new covenant, that should be removed so we can stand honestly and openly between with that other person, sin removed. We can come back to something like existed in the Garden of Eden. That's what God expects. My wife talks of her, her mother. Um, she would hide her things uh, from her father and uh, she wouldn't, wouldn't tell him things. Maybe he overreacted to certain things, I don't know. And, and so Daphne, uh, oh, that's my wife, sorry. Uh, she, she said, I'm not hiding anything from you, so she tells me. And so I said, well, I don't really care. Or no, I, mean, I tried not to use the word care. I said, it doesn't really matter. It, it, you know, I've spent this, or I said, it's fine, you don't have to tell me. No, I want to tell you, I want to tell you what it is. So I shouldn't really put that down, should I? It's like, she wants this openness, this uh, afraid of seeing it somewhere wrong, wants that not to be in this marriage. She wants to be open. open. Um, I'm open, but I pick my moments. Do you understand that? It's like it's not always best to say everything all the time, but when the moment is right, you can do it. Because I don't want to hide things either. I've done this, or uh, I was thinking of doing that, but just, just pick your moments right. Okay, okay, that's, that's me. I'm not perfect yet. Okay, I'm working towards it slowly. So here we are touching areas of what the Bible calls the mystery. There is a mystery. All things of the heart have something of a mystery attached to them. 
a spiritual knowing only by experience. That's possibly one of the wonders of marriage. Sometimes you look at people and you think, hmm, they're married. It's like, I wonder what it's like in their marriage relationship. It's like, oh, I'm surprised she's married to him. Or, oh, you know what I mean? You just, sometimes you think, oh, you know, well, what's a surprise? Nothing, you know. Because they have something of a mystery, something supernatural within them that's, that's, that's making it work somehow. On the main feature that distinguishes marriage from all other personal relationships, because it is unique in itself, it's not like any other blood relationship or friendship relationship, it's nothing like that at all. The husband and wife become one. We know that right from the beginning of Genesis. What does it mean to become one? A single unit. Hmm. Sometimes I wonder about eternity. It's a bit of a mystery, isn't it, marriage in eternity? Because the scriptures indicate it isn't here for eternity. It's here for while we're on earth. You go, well, this person I've lived with for umpteen years, decades and decades, how will I see them? because I can no longer see them as my wife. That's, that's not going to be it. Hmm. Then I thought, well, the two of us have become one. So is there something of her that comes into me and something of me that goes into her that makes her complete? Because on my own now, I'm incomplete. I need her. Uh, she's, I won't say the better half, that's another one of those worldly things. She is uh, the half with me. It is a real mystery. But there is something that, uh, in my imagination, she will be in me and I will be in her. And we will be complete persons. I don't know what happens if people have married two or three times. Uh, see, it all, it all gets a bit weird then, doesn't it? And a bit strange. But uh, there we go. Anyway, uh, so the mystery of the single unit to whom God reveals himself and his truth and in which both partners grow to maturity together in equality, complementing each other. The way my wife is complements me. I think if you see that, you don't have to try and be something else because why should you try and be what she is in the, in the unity? If, if my wife says something to you, I've said it to you. If I say something, if I do something for you, she's done it for you. There is something of that unity that is a mystery, probably difficult to understand or even try and understand. But we know it exists. We know it's something special and unique from God. The one flesh of the marriage covenant. The last thing I have is the importance of remembrance in marriage. It says in Malachi 3.16, then those who feared the Lord, they talked with each other. And the Lord listened and he heard. It's a lovely verse, isn't it? You see this couple, this husband and wife, talking away. What are they talking about? They're talking about all the things that God has done before in their lives. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. You see, there's something in these two people joining themselves as one, walking together through life with God, and they have all these memories of what has gone on before. Together they walked with God. When he was down, she lifted him up, and when she was, he supported her, and when she was ill, he he sacrificed everything for that. And then they had to go through this difficult thing together. And, and there was great times of joy and excitement. And, 
And they did it together. They enjoyed it together. And so they have this scroll of remembrance. And they sit down and they talk to the Lord about these things. It's important to recall our time that we've lived. When I pastored a church, they might have not experienced what I was doing. Every now and then, I'd tell them where we had been and what we had done and how we got to this place. It's exciting to do it. It's like, oh, and then of course as new people join you, they know your history. They know where you've come from. They know the hardships and they go, oh, I didn't know I was joining these people who had journeyed all this time. But if, if we have the privilege of being married for some time, then we can, we can have these memories, these stories that God has done, and we're to remember them. Seeking to understand his revelation and his dealing with us in all things. I hope this has helped. Um, I can imagine it would be a bit challenging for people if they've you know, gone through a broken relationship or they're struggling with their marriage. And uh, I hope it hasn't upset or offended anyone. That wasn't the plan of sharing these things, but just seeing what was potentially possible, what God really desired for us in a covenant relationship on earth. It would reflect the covenant relationship we had or we have with him. Often I reflect on my relationships here and my relationships there, either with my children or my wife or with my own mother and father who've passed away, how that has helped me to just understand how much God loves me and how much uh, he enjoys my fellowship, my company and everything about me. Okay, God bless. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's final lesson of the Covenants Part 2 module. And please join us again next week as we begin a new module titled Rejection. Also, if you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can do so by heading over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.